0: morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses where Jesus does this miracle. Here the first miracle that John records in his gospel and a wedding event being the first place John puts right up front in the beginning of his gospel. So we'll try and figure out why John does this. Let's start with verse 1 in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, He did not know where he had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of the signs that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Lord, thank you for your mercies by giving us your word. Thank you for your kindness by sending your spirit to help us understand it. Thank you for the glory that is in this passage of you and your love for us and your love for your people. And Father, we pray and ask that Your Holy Spirit would descend upon each of us, opening our hearts, opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our minds so that we would receive what it is you want us to see and understand about you and about ourselves and bless us with the joy of your presence in our hearts and in our souls, and in our minds. And I ask, Father, that you would just let your word pour forth during these next few minutes that we have together, and that your spirit would speak in a way that is powerfully and mysteriously impactful on each of us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So, this is kind of fascinating, a little bit uncomfortable at times, it, sometimes it may challenge our view of Jesus and Certain preconceived notions and ideas that we have, or at least it did for me, working through this passage. There's a couple of places in here that just are a little bit uncomfortable for some of us. Maybe you'll feel uncomfortable with some of the things that are said or the tone of voice in which they're said. And we'll just kind of work through this and see how it comes out. See if we can get to a place where we're okay with what Jesus is okay with even though we may not be okay with it to start. And then we'll just begin with something simple. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. So the third day, right? How does this work the third day? I mean, how does John count this the third day? right? I mean, if we're really counting from the way he starts this, this is day five, not day three. Because he starts the narrative back in chapter one with the Jerusalem Pharisees coming to John. That's day one. Then day two, he says, there's the Lamb of God. Day three, he says, there's another Lamb of God. He says it again and calls it the first couple of disciples. Then day four, he calls Nathaniel and Philip and tells Nathaniel, you're a guy who there is no deceit. And now we come to day five and they go to this wedding. But John says day three. So how does this work? Is John just not able to count? Is that his problem? I mean, what? Why? How how do you call this day three, John, when clearly you've been describing to us a narrative sequentially day by day, and we're at day number five? Well, this is the third day of Jesus' public ministry, this third day since he began to reveal himself to the world. Day one was the second day that John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. And then he calls his first couple of disciples that were following him, Andrew and the unnamed disciple. Day two is when he goes into Galilee and calls Philip and Nathaniel. And now here is day three of his public ministry, is day three of revealing himself to the world. Also, we can't escape that reality that John's probably drawing an allusion here to the third day of Jesus revealing himself. And the resurrection, which is Jesus revealed to the world again in a a very powerful way as the risen Messiah and Savior. It's almost assuredly that he's drawing that reference for us, that, that connection that here on this third day of Jesus revealing himself, he does a miracle that will also remind us of the third day resurrection miracle. And then we start reading, you know, that he and his disciples are there and Jesus has a conflict with Mary. Did y'all pick up on that? There was a little bit of terseness there. It sounded, wait a minute, this is not the meek and mild, always respectful of his mother and father Jesus sounding here. I mean, wait a minute. This is this is one of those parts that became uncomfortable. Like, this sounds like Jesus a little terse with his mother. I mean, I know that. I've been terse with my mother. But this is Jesus. He's not supposed to be terse with his mom. What's going, you know, and there are just so many questions here on top of this, you know, sort of in our face conflict with Mary, like how, you know, Mary says to him, look, they've ran out of wine. Clearly she's expecting him to do something about it. Like, why? Why do you think Jesus can do anything about it? Why do you think Jesus can solve their wine problem, Mary? Wait, are you holding out on us? Has Jesus done something before in private that would give you a reason to think that he could fix this? And we can only really kind of say two things as a result of that question of what do you know that you're not telling us, Mary? And that we do not know what miracles or supernatural works Jesus has done before. The Coptic Church of Egypt is full of stories about Jesus during his time in Egypt as a small child doing miracles. Well, I shouldn't say full. That's an overstatement. But they have numerous stories, several stories that they hold to as historically accurate of miracles that the infant toddler Jesus would do. But we don't know those. We don't know. Yet it is clear from Mary's words that Jesus had already displayed some kind of supernatural gifting. She knew he could do something special to solve this problem. That's why she could come to him with such confidence and just say, fix it. Go fix this. But then Jesus wasn't, Jesus was just, he didn't sound like he was really quite on board with this to begin with. Right? I mean, you can see this reluctance. Woman, what does that have to do with me? I don't know about you, but when I've tried using that word woman with my mother, it didn't go very well. Woman, what's that got to do with me? And then the next thing I remember, I was staring at the ceiling. Why does Jesus have such reluctance It's Mary's command to fix it? I mean, most good Jewish boys, I mean, you can almost, sometime, I mean, you know you can almost imagine the conversation that's not recorded here. Jesus, they're out of wine. You need to fix this. Woman, what does that have to do with me? Oh, oh, most good Jewish boys would not question their mother. They would just fix it. Mary, most mother, most Jewish boys can't turn water into wine. You know? So why is Jesus reluctant to do this? Mary has the same problem that everybody else has in Jesus' circle. Mary, like everyone else, still does not understand what Jesus' true mission is, what his purpose was. She too, like all the other disciples, were expecting something different than what he was there for. You can almost hear the words of Jesus' brothers coming out in this conversation with Mary, words that we will read later. Quit hiding and reveal yourself to the world. You have a purpose. Quit hiding and reveal yourself to the world. And Jesus' response is this is not my hour. It's not my time yet. I know you want it to be my time, but it's not my time yet. Quit hiding and reveal yourself to the world. It'll come in time. See, The other problem that Mary and the many of the disciples and other people had was the danger of what I mentioned last week of seeing Jesus as the divine ATM machine. We've got this problem and you need to fix it because you, you have this special gifting and you can just do things, fix it. Looking at him like some ATM machine that we just go get money out of whenever we need it, but that's not who he is. That's not why he's here. It's not his purpose. And Jesus is like pushing back. Can almost imagine the frustration he has of people are always looking at me wrongly. They always look at me like I'm their ATM machine and they never look at me like I'm their savior. And we can do the same thing, right? I mean, just that. I've got a problem, Jesus, you need to fix it. Oh yeah, I can hear Jesus responding. Oh yeah, you've got a problem, but it's not the one you think you got then we have just the miracle itself in verses six through 10, this whole thing of water being turned into wine. And as good Baptist, this creates a whole nother set of problems for us. These six stone jars that Jesus uses to turn into wine and He just quietly and without drawing attention to himself, miraculously turns this water into really good wine, not just regular old run-of-the-mill wine. Apparently, it's really, really good stuff. And it wasn't like just a little bit either. This is like 120 to 150 gallons that he makes into wine. Like a regular wine barrel is 60 gallons. So Jesus just turns around and hands the bridegroom and the master of the feast almost two and a half barrels of wine at the blink of an eye. Which creates a wine problem for some people. Did Jesus really just make an alcoholic beverage and condone its use? Did he really just do that? My Jesus would never do that. Well, then you got the wrong Jesus. Because he just did. And that's uncomfortable. Now, of course, we've got a legitimate discussion to take place about the use of alcohol and 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 drunkenness and all the things that Scripture talks against. But we can't run and play this game that somehow Jesus didn't encourage its use. He didn't ever condone drinking wine because he clearly does. And we know he did at other festivals and feasts as well. And so this is one of those places where we just have to kind of get over ourselves and come to terms with what Jesus says. Those will be a conversations for another day. Then there's this whole question of why is Jesus' first public miracle, at least as John's presenting it, turning water into wine at a wedding? Like, really? It's like this just a warm-up act? Like, the real miracle's... Are coming, But this is just kind of like, you know, get my miracle muscles working, you know, loosen them up and get them flexed, and get them in preparation for the real stuff. Is that what this is? Just sort of practice? That doesn't doesn't really seem to fit the way John presents Jesus. Again, it seems that John is drawing an allusion to Jesus's purpose here in uniting all mankind and bringing him joy. Because first, we have to recognize that wine in the New Testament is a symbol of joy. It's used often throughout the New Testament as this symbol of the presence and, and bringing of joy and causing joy and as a result of joy and being an outflow of joy. But it's not the only time wine is used as a symbol. It's also used as a symbol of the Spirit. Now, that gets really uncomfortable for some people, right? That wine is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. That really blows their mind. And then you have this parallel of Jesus at this wedding here in Cana and the wedding feast of the church in Revelation chapter 19. Look, and John wrote these two, he didn't, it wasn't he only wrote them a handful of years apart. So it's not like he forgot about the wedding in Cana when he's writing Revelation 19, and it's not like he doesn't remember about Revelation 19 when he's writing this. Well, depending on the order of things occur. It just seems like there's also a parallel here to Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, where Adam and Eve are brought together and God affirms the, the goodness of marriage. Seems as though there's a parallel here in that Jesus is affirming the divine idea of marriage, not just as a human institution that we enjoy as Human beings in matrimony of husband and wife, but also as a symbol of him and his church with the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation 19, as I mentioned a moment ago. So all of this is just kind of like overwhelming and flooding our minds and our hearts. This, All these symbols and all this parallelism and, and all of this coming out of just this simple, what appears to be kind of benign act if you can call turning water into wine miraculously a benign act but the miracle itself is stunning jesus does not say an incantation you know, he doesn't he doesn't do a harry potter spell he doesn't perform any magical ritual he does not even command the water to turn to wine he doesn't wave his hands over these stone barrels he just thinks it and it happens what you're not going to wait wait that's not how miracles are performed come on jesus you got to get with the program right there's a there's a distinct protocol for miracle working in the book of miracle working everybody knows what you're supposed to do jesus you either have to say some magic ritual incantation You have to wave your hand or something that looks like a wand. You have to say some words. You have to at least speak. You can't just like think it and it happens. That's not allowed. Jesus is even overturning here, not just the way miracles are done. He's over, this is actually starting to become a confrontation of everything with the way it's done. All the traditions all the stuff that people say, all the rules that you got to follow, this is the beginning of overturning the barrel cart, the wheelbarrow. Because these stone jars, because they were used, the the jars themselves weren't what people ceremonially washed themselves in. The the device, the the actual tub-like feature is called a McVeigh. These jars were just the water that you used to fill the McVeigh. But just like everything else with the Pharisees, you just can't like go to the well and draw water up out of the well and put it in a jar and bring it to the McVeigh. No, that's not good enough for the Pharisees. First off, it has to be a stone jar. Because stone is the only way you can keep something holy. Keep water holy. Right? The McVeigh itself had to be chiseled out of stone. These jars had to be chiseled out of stone. You just, and then you just, like I said, you can't just like draw water out of a well. That's not good enough for the Pharisees. No, you've got to go to a creek or a river and you have to draw live, live water. Okay, what's live water? They defined live water as something that where the water actually flows, like in a creek or a river. And so the only water that's allowed to be used for these stones, and the only water you can put in the McVeigh is the living water that's drawn from a creek or a river. Well, if you caught rainwater, that would count that would count, because right water has to flow off of some structure into the water to catch it. But here's the problem: Anybody want to take a guess how close the nearest creek or river is to Cana? Not. Not. It's not like we could just kind of run down to to Wilcox here and draw water out of the creek. It's not that convenient for Cana. It was a big deal to have to, I mean, these stone jars are heavy by themselves before you put any water in them. We got to put them on a cart or something and we got to, got to wheel them for miles to get to a creek or a river and then fill them up and bring them back. These are the rules the Pharisees make. Right? Why? Because they do. I don't know why. I don't know why they have half the rules they make, but they do. But it's not, it's not holy water. It's not, it's not clean water. It doesn't count if you draw the water out of a well. And so by the fact that these were already empty, these had already been taken to some place of flowing water, probably. Probably. And now Jesus is telling them just, you know, fill them up with water. Any water. I don't care. But Jesus, you know how long it takes us to go down the creek and fill these up? Well, you don't need to do that. Just get some water out of the well. Who cares? What? We can get just regular water and put them in these stone jars? We can do that? Yeah, just go do that. See, this is the amazing thing about Scripture. Scripture the most benign-looking words often have the most striking confrontation. There's nothing here, there's never ever anything in Scripture that's just fluff, just there for our entertainment or to add a little color to the narrative. Every single word is dripping with meaning. Something as simple as the third day. Something as simple as just fill the jars with water. Something as simple as they have no wine. They look so benign, but yet they're dripping with confrontation and meaning. That's often uncomfortable. Yet that's what Jesus does. He just upsets the apple cart all the way through. It seems as if there's nothing that he's not happy upsetting the apple cart over. Well, that didn't come out right. There were too many negatives. So, he seems like he's really happy always upsetting the apple cart. Let's try it that way. And then, he just speaks and these and these things are, these jars turn to water. But, Even before that, look at the end of verse 7. In the middle of verse 7, he commands, fill the jars with water. And what does John say? And they filled them up to the brim. So, remember, John almost always, almost always he is drawing symbolism out in his narratives. They filled them to the brim. There was no space left for more water to be added to each of these jars. And then he turns them into wine. And we cannot escape the symbolism of the wine as joy and the spirit. They're filled to the brim with wine they're filled to the brim with the symbols of joy and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Everything is just dripping with intensity in this passage. He just, he fills it to the brim. He fills us to the brim if we will let him. And then if that wasn't just shocking and stunning enough, he just didn't make cheap wine. He made really good stuff. This is not just you. Know, you, you know, you, if you go to the wine store and you look to buy some wine, right? The cheap stuff's on the bottom shelf, right? The low quality stuff is always on the bottom shelf. What's, what's up high on the top shelf? The good stuff that's cost more money. That's where the good stuff is kept. And here Jesus makes top shelf wine. I mean, I mean the the master of the feast is just stunned when he starts to drink the first sips of this wine. So much so that he calls the bridegroom over and goes, Hey, what are you what what are you doing? You're messing with us, buddy. Everybody always does it the same way. You bring out the good stuff at the beginning of the festival for the wedding. And then after people have gotten comfortable and relaxed from drinking the good stuff, you start serving the cheap stuff. The watered down wine. But you, you've flipped it upside down. You've waited till now to bring us the good stuff. You see, for the Christian and for us as disciples and followers of Jesus, the good stuff is yet to come. The top shelf stuff is still in our future. As good as it is today, it's going to get better. Then we get to verse 11 where John tells us the purpose of the miracle. And this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. John tells us the reason for this miracle that is to glorify Jesus, giving evidence to who he is and it causes his disciples to believe in him. Put on your imagination caps for a moment and try to think you're one of the disciples. You've just started following Jesus. You openly with your mouth confess that he's the Messiah. He has to be the lamb of God because John said it. And and so it's got to be true, but you got these doubts on the inside. Maybe you know, I'm never going to say it out loud on purpose but you know is he really? And then you drink some of this wine and then you find out where it came from. How's that going to change your view of who he is? See This passage, what John tells us in verse 11, is that knowing Jesus is a very experiential thing. Just having the intellectual knowledge and understanding of who he is, as it tells us in scripture and throughout the evidences of church history and apologetics, isn't enough. To really believe in him, we have to experientially know him as our Savior and the Messiah. And as we discussed in the previous hour, this passage shows that those kind of experiences often come at the expense of an uncomfortable and unpleasant moment in life. Not always, but often that way. How do I really know that Jesus can carry me through the thresholds of death into the Father's hands, into the glories of heaven? How do I know he can do that? Well, you can point to the resurrection. I can point to these intellectual evidences of it. But the only way I really know it is to experience something close to death it doesn't need to be a physical death. It's not like I died and had the near-death experience. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about something so traumatic, so devastating, that it feels like I'm dead on the inside. And then Jesus carries me through that. And from that experience of knowing him as my Savior, who resurrected me from an emotional dead spot, or even from a spiritually dead spot, like Ephesians chapter 2, and then I'm alive again, I know he is who he says he is, and that I can trust him to carry me through, even to and through physical death. This is who he is. This is who he's telling us he is. He's who he's revealing himself as, and this is who we come to know him as. And then to wrap things up, John closes out this section or this passage or this event with verse 12. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Jesus has a crew now. It's no longer just this itinerant preacher roaming the countryside preaching that Isaiah chapter 65 has now come to fruition before their very eyes. He's got a crew. He's got his mom, He's got his brothers and sisters. Actually, in reality, the word brothers there should probably read brothers and sisters. And he's got his disciples. Okay, so why does John go to all the trouble? Why does he go out of his way of showing that Jesus has his mother and brothers and sisters along with his disciples? Well, maybe one reason is, is because In A.D. 90, when John's writing these words, Jesus' blood brothers and sisters would have been known to Jesus' followers. And I think John wants his readers to see that Jesus was human. He's not just a divine being. That he had a mother and blood brothers and sisters giving evidence to his humanity. You say, well, why does that matter? Well, because at this point, in the early stages, at the end of the first century, There were already questions about his humanity. Was he really real as a human being or was he just a god walking the earth like Greek and Roman mythology? And then there was also the entire beginning and early phases, the infancy of Gnosticism, denying anything physical and human, saying that Jesus could not possibly have taken on human flesh. That was merely an illusion because there's just no way That divinity would take on something so nasty as human flesh. And John's attacking those lies right here. And then there's also this other reality that, look, his disciples are now counted as part of his family. They're used in the same sentence with his mother and brothers and sisters the disciples aren't just like on the outside looking in anymore. They're part of his family. And if they are part of his family, we are part of his family. Is there anything else you can add to this, John? I mean, there's just so much here and there's so much more that I've left unsaid this morning. But even this was overwhelming, at least for me, I mean, this is just too much. It's too much for my mind and my heart and my soul to absorb. It's too much for me to understand this idea that I'm part of his family now. It's too much for me to understand that there's nothing he's not afraid of. It's too much to understand and comprehend that, that I know him experientially, and that just changes the way I see him. Well, this has been fantastic, but so what? So what? Big hairy deal. I don't know. I got a couple of ideas on what, why this matters. The same question that I raised last week appears even in this week. I got a feeling it's going to show up again in the weeks ahead. Which Jesus are you looking for? Are we falling for the trap of a divine ATM machine? Jesus promises to meet all of our needs out of his abundant riches. Philippians 4.19, right? That's all true. And we can expect our Savior to supply us with all that we need and do it with quality provisions. That's clearly true from what he's shown here in this passage. Yet too often we, too often I, am hung up on the material provisions and forget about the provisions of the heart, the mind, and the soul. We are not just physical beings of a body. Our whole personhood is bigger than our physical body. Scripture defines and describes our whole being, our whole personhood as heart, mind, soul, and body. And Jesus cares about our whole person, not just the physical. Jesus is also the source, creator, and provider of our joy. Gladness and joy are the marks of a Christian. Why? Because we enjoy the completeness of knowing Jesus, knowing him intimately, which brings us contentment, satisfaction, and joy. How's your joy? How is your joy? Look, I'm not standing up here piously asking that question like, my joy was complete this week, how was yours? I'm asking in the humility of, you know, my joy was kind of sucky at times because I was being stupid. It wasn't because he didn't have joy to give and it wasn't because it wasn't there to take. It was because I was being foolish. I was believing the lies instead of believing the truth. And when we believe the lies, we are robbed of our joy. But when we believe the truth, our joy is restored to us. And when Jesus gives you the cup of joy, drink deep from Jesus' cup of wine. This draws directly from the illusion of the Last Supper with his disciples where Jesus intentionally does not drink from the cup of joy in the Passover ritual there that night, saying that he will drink from that cup in heaven with all of us. Yet we're to drink from that cup of joy every day. And this joy isn't the smile, be happy, positive thinking kind of joy. This is keeping one foot firmly rooted in the reality that our joy is in Christ Jesus, not in our circumstances. And when I forget that, that's when I lose my joy because I'm focusing on the circumstances. Doing so makes joy possible in the best of times and the worst of times. I can be joyful In the worst of times, because I have one foot rooted in this reality that Jesus is my joy. And that never changes, despite the darkest of moments in this life. And just like at this wedding, we experience the lesser wine now in this life, but the good stuff is yet to come. As the wine is a symbol of joy, so it is also a symbol of how for us as Jesus' followers, we have so much joy in this life walking with him. Yet the joy that we will have with him in the next life is immeasurable compared to it. We have so much greater, so much richer, so much more in every way waiting for us. And I would even argue and make the case that even here in this life, we have so much more, so much greater, so much richer in every way of joy waiting for us if we will walk with him more fully. We ain't had the good stuff yet. But we will. Because he is true to his promises and he loves us that much. To keep bringing the good stuff. Let's pray. Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your joy. And I pray father. That we would be filled. With you. And that our joy. Would be made complete. That it would be made rich. That it would be made. Made great, and that it would be made full to the brim of our hearts, minds, and souls, and even to the brims of our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.